the tremendous things that you have for us. I pray that uh, through the power of the Spirit we would listen and uh, hear what he has to say, take it in. I pray that your Spirit would guide and direct him this evening. I thank you for our friendship uh, all these years. I just pray that you would bless this time that we have together. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, I pray. Amen. Robbie, it's yours. And it's good to be back with uh, back here after so uh, so many years, 1991. So that's uh, boy, a lot has happened since then. But we won't go into that. Uh, anyway, like, like John said, except he got things backwards. We first met at Camp Penal. Now that's an important story as part of uh, our topic time on creation and and evolution because. It was when I was uh, 14 years old at Camp Penile that you shifted from just going to camp, and, and they had a um, uh, they had a what they called their uh, canoe trips or trail camps, and later on they introduced backpacking trips, and it was more of an adventure camp, and you left the main camp and you'd go out on the canoe for four, the Texas Colorado River, and canoe for. Uh, four or five days, or you'd go backpacking, things like that. And the man who uh, led those was a man by the name of Mike Turnage. And Mike was a biology teacher at a high school in Houston. And uh, he went to be with the Lord back in 1976 or 1977. He had a brain tumor, brain cancer. But Mike always taught a Bible class for the for the 14, 15, 16-year-old boys that were on this trip on creation and evolution. And there were some things that, that Mike taught that I wasn't sure about because that wasn't exactly what uh, what I heard from the pulpit of the church where that I attended. And at the church where I attended, the pastor taught a view that was very popular with a lot of evangelicals over the years uh, from uh, early 1800s on called the Gap View. And we'll go into the details of that uh, this week. If you're not familiar with it, I'll go into some details on that. But that was one of the ways that evangelicals taught uh, thought that they could do, um, uh, assimilate what the Bible taught and still hold to a biblical creation and at the same time accept what science taught in terms of historical geology and in terms of the, uh, of the theory of evolution. And so that was just one way in which evangelicals tried to interpret Genesis chapter 1 in a way that would fit with contemporary scientific uh, theories and, uh, and findings. And yet, uh, at that time, uh, Mike did not uh, agree with that at all. And he taught what I would call today a recent creation, young earth view, that is... The, typical of what is taught by a group called uh, the Institute for Creation Research in San Diego, now in Dallas. Also, Answers in Genesis, AIG. They have a great website, by the way. And a number of other creationist organizations that teach a young earth view where they look at Genesis chapter 1 as teaching uh, of, cre- of creation and, and that day 1 begins with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that was the beginning of the first day of creation. 
So that caused a tension in my mind, and I started uh, asking questions. I'd go to the pastor, and I would ask him to uh, explain his position, and he would uh, direct me to some of the tapes that he had taught on it, and then I would go back and I would ask my question for three or four years until I become such a nuisance that the uh, church... Uh, uh, kicked Campanile off their missionary support list because it was confusing the young people. But it stirred up enough interest and uh, curiosity in my mind that that's one of the reasons that I majored in Hebrew and Old Testament studies when I went to Dallas Seminary to try to get to the bottom of these issues because they are not the simplest of issues. And as we'll see tonight, everybody seems to have a certain agenda. I have my agenda. You have your agenda. Everybody's got their own agenda. Anybody tells you they don't have an agenda or their their room their IQ is uh, in the single digits. So one or the other are to, to, you know totally self deceived. So that's how I got started. And back in the late '60s and early '70s. The Institute for Creation Research was just getting started. I think it was actually founded in 1971 by a man named Henry Morris. Henry Morris had his uh, uh, degree in hydraulic engineering, background in geology, taught at Rice University, what is now Rice University. Back then it was Rice Institute. And he was t- uh, into the military during World War II, but was unable to do that. He was married, had children already. And so he was teaching at Rice, and he was already beginning to write a few books. Incidentally, he also uh, was attending the same church that John and I attended in Houston, so that's sort of an interesting connection there. ...of that church. Church then, what does that mean? Scraping or making noise or something? But the pastor of the church at that time was a man by the name of Dick Sumi, Dr. Richard Sumi. And uh, Dr. Sumi was the later became the chaplain at Dallas Theological Seminary. In between, he pastored a church in New Jersey and a church, and I think he also pastored a Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Well, Do- Dr. Morris had written a couple of pamphlets, a couple of small books on science and the Bible, and Dr. Sumi took some of those with him when he moved up to Princeton. And there was a young student at Princeton by the name of John Whitcomb who had just become a believer. And John Whitcomb got a hold of some of those books that Dr. Morris wrote. And it uh, in, and later on when uh, they got to meet and uh, Dr. Whitcomb went to seminary at uh, Grace Seminary, got his uh, doctorate, his Ph.D., and was the head of the Old Testament Department at Grace Seminary. And eventually he and Dr. Morris wrote a book called the Genesis flood. And this was a groundbreaking, earth-shattering, roof-shaking, foundation-crumbling book that when it came out in 1961 because almost without exception all of the evangelical seminaries and the Old Testament departments at at all of the uh, so-called conservative evangelical seminaries had all bought into some kind of uh, system of assimilating or accommodating evolutionary theory. And so they, they were into various forms of theistic evolution, day-age theory, gap view, things of th- this nature. And nobody was teaching a serious view of biblical creationism. And when that book came out, it truly challenged uh, uh, the, the status quo and created a revolution. In fact, the entire modern creation. 
church had me read it when I was 14 years old. I couldn't understand much of it, but I understood enough of it to realize that you really could trust the Bible to mean what it says and to to be communicating uh, in, in a literal manner exactly what had happened, even though the Bible is not a science book per se, what it does record and say about history, what it says about about uh, weather, what it says about the earth, the history of the earth, these are true, because this is God who is the revealer of this information to us, and therefore we can count on it. God doesn't make mistakes. God is able to uh, create us, human beings, in a way to that he is going to communicate to us, and he is able, to, therefore, to communicate to us. It's like somebody who uh, created a radio. They have to be able to create a, uh, a transmitter that transmits at the same level and the same frequency that the radio can receive so that you can uh, then broadcast it. And so God is, was able to do that. I believe that God designed the Scriptures and reveal them in such a way that they're understandable. Now, that doesn't mean that we just pick it up and automatically know what the Scripture says, but most of the time, uh, we're not too far off base if we just take the Scriptures at a at a literal uh, first blush reading. We're pretty close unless there are some, some other problems, and we'll get into that issue in, in just a minute. But the big issue that we're, I'm really going to address uh, in the next couple of nights is this issue of timing. Is the earth old or not? Is it relatively young or is it old? And then we're not talking about the difference between a 50-year-old and a 70-year-old. We're talking about the difference between something on the order of six to 10,000 years versus three to five billion years. Okay, that's like the difference between uh, a baby that's born and lives for about 30 seconds and someone who lives to be 105 years old. There's a huge difference between those two. It's not just a matter of a few little things here. If we just massage here or we expand the time frame over here a little bit, that somehow we can move from six or 7,000 to uh, 3 to 5 billion uh, we, we can't just do that. So it, it really involves a lot of things. Sometimes people say, well, what does it really matter? As long as we believe God created everything, created man in his image, and we get the basic point. Well, it involves a lot of other issues. If you think you can interpret uh, the first two verses of Genesis uh, in that manner, and if you think you can interpret Genesis chapters 1 through 11 uh, in that manner, then why can't you interpret the rest of the Bible in that manner? It has to do with some really significant uh, assu- issues related to assumptions and presuppositions that impact how you understand the rest, uh, the rest of the Bible. So we ask the question, as we have in the first slide, is it a young earth after all? I mean, every time we turn around, we hear that the earth and the universe are billions and billions of years old. That's the mantra that is constantly repeated by all the propagandizers of Darwinism. You have, uh, whether it's a news broadcaster or science teachers in the classroom, history teachers. In fact, you'll get more evolution, in my experience, you'll get more about evolutionary theory in English classes and history classes than you will in science classes. Uh, museum docents. Anytime you go to a museum, you go to a state park, you go... Am I hitting a connection? 
There we go. Okay. Maybe when I was pulling out of my pocket. Okay. Anywhere we go, we go to a museum, you go to national park, state park, any place you go, you're always told that this, the, these strata were laid down over uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. You go to uh, museums, you hear these same terms, you watch anything on PBS, and it's, you know, a million, five million, fifty million years old. All of these things are constantly thrown at us, and as we hear those, we become desensitized to those numbers, and it's very easy for people to just accept that as reality. After all, everybody believes it. That's what you hear everywhere. These are men of science. They are men who deal in facts. They're not men who deal in faith. They're men who deal in in scientific data. So, after all, we should we should believe them. These are are uh, well-founded uh, well-founded theories. So, we have to ask this question, is there really solid evidence for an old earth or is there a basis for challenging this and so um, we need to start with uh, the scripture and just start with a few basic basic things by way of introduction well first of all when we talk about old what do we mean by old old can be relative in that in that right John so here here's Methuselah and Methuselah says that he just turned 969 years old, and people keep telling me how old I am. I tell them, I'm not old. The earth is old. It's almost 700 years older than I am. So the old is a relative term. Now, the other, another problem we run into is some of you have been taught a certain view, and that is something you're real comfortable with. And uh, that's a problem, because you should never become so comfortable with something you believe that you're not willing to tweak it, you're not willing to learn new information and look at it uh, a slightly different way and, and at least maybe refine your understanding of something. Too often we, we're like this old man in the cartoon that we have our favorite little pet theories and we have them locked up so tight, tightly that uh, we're not going to let anybody raise any questions and if somebody does... Uh, we're so insecure in our position that uh, uh, we'll just kind of get up and walk out the back door and hope nobody really sees us leave, and then we're, we'll just go on about our, our business. So before we even get started in talking about the issues that are related to this, we have to cover some basic uh, foundational matters. Uh, so there's two foundational issues that I think have to be addressed. The first is the matter of authority matter of authority. Who's the boss? How are you going to finally decide who is right? Are you going to decide that the Bible's right, science is right, on what basis? How are you going to evaluate the evidence? Who's the, who's the traffic cop, in other words? Who is it that referees knowledge and says this is true and this is not true? So that's the first question, a matter of authority. Now, we come up with several different answers. Uh, in history as to how you decide what is right. The first is reason. Is it logical? Does it pass the test of reason? Is it rational? The second is experience. Experience. How does uh, that stack up to our experience? 
Uh, third is a combination of the two. That's really what we would call the scientific method. Scientific method is observation. From observation, you go to the formation of a hypothesis. Then you develop various tests to evaluate uh, the hypothesis, may, perhaps make some modifications. And then you propose a theory, and then you uh, document all of your uh, experiments, give them to somebody else to see if they can duplicate those experiments under uh, the same circumstances in some other laboratory. And then if it passes the test and it's observable and repeatable, then you can go ahead and uh, perhaps propose a scientific law or uh, something of that nature. Another way in which we come to knowledge is intuition. We just look at something and says, that looks old. That looks really old. Now, not too long ago, I, uh, I did a, uh, <coughs> a situation. I ran into somebody I've known who was in the same Bible, teen Bible class that uh, John taught years ago. And this uh, uh, young lady uh, has been living out on a farm, and I don't think she's seen makeup in 40 years. And now if you look at her, she has the appearance of being much older than she actually is. But that doesn't mean that she is the same age as her appearance. So some things, we look at something, we see some something, and we think, oh, I know exactly what that is. It's intuition, which is a combination of a number of different things, uh, our experience, our, our background, our uh, reason. All these things come to bear, and we make flash decisions. So uh, reason, experience, a combination of the two are intuition. Those are the basic ways in which we come to make a decision on things. And, of course, I left out one thing, and that is uh, revelation. And that's a, another way in which we come to know truth. Now, the second foundational issue has to do with interpretation. It's one thing to say that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and there are lots of people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. In fact, you have some of the... Uh, back in the 1970s, some of you are old enough perhaps to remember this, there was a huge controversy in evangelicalism over the nature of inspiration and the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And there was a uh, there was a uh, group, couple of meetings that took place in Chicago uh, in the middle 70s, 76, 77, where they released a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is several pages long. And then they came back two or three years later and met again because they realized that you can somebody can believe and affirm inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, but then their system of interpretation then gives it all away. And so the way they interpret Scripture can invalidate the, the literal truth of the text. And so just because somebody holds to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture doesn't mean that they don't have uh, some basic problems in the way they handle or interpret Scripture. Now, one of the things that uh, individuals I'll bring up as we talk about uh, some of these different issues is a man named Norm Geisler, and I had, we call him Storm and Norman because of his uh, uh, rather, uh, <coughs> uh, his personality, he loves to, loves to fight, loves to argue, and uh, he knows his stuff, and I think uh, Geisler's probably written 60 or 70 books, the, mi- the man's mind is unbelievable, but he believes in an old earth 
view, and uh, he's he's had some the day age view and some other things, and see, and I would say that that's inconsistent with what he has said about inerrancy and what he has said also about hermeneutics. It is an inconsistency and a flaw within his thinking, and I would take it back to what really comes under this uh, first category, and that has to do with how do you know truth? How do you ultimately really decide what is true and what isn't? What's the traffic cop? And I would argue that for, for Geisler, the traffic cop comes down to reason because of his background. He's got his um, uh, Ph.D. in Thomistic philosophy, from uh, from Loyola, I believe, and he is influenced heavily by an, the empirical uh, philosophy of Aristotle by way of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, I have a master's degree in Thomistic philosophy, but I studied it so I would follow the great uh, principles of Sun Tzu in, in order to know thy enemy. Okay, so those are the two big questions. So what's your basis for knowledge? In other words, how, what's the traffic cop in your, in your head that's going to decide this is true and this isn't? How do you know something is true? And so on this chart, so I build it out on the, on the left side, I've got the, the two labels there for the, the divine viewpoint. In other words, what the scripture says is the, the bottom category. And then at the top is called the autonomous systems of perception. Now that's, <clears throat> big phrase, basically means independent, autonomous means independent, so these are ways of knowing truth that are independent of any kind of revelation or any kind of divine authority. Now, I'm not talking about church authority. Church authority is a totally different thing. It is, the, the, we're talking about the authority of the Word of God. And so you, across the top, I'll talk about three aspects of these. The system itself the starting point of the system, and then its methodology. Now, remember, methodology is not neutral. A lot of people think methodology is neutral. In other words, how you do something, is uh, it can't be good or bad as long as you get results. That's pure pragmatism. And uh, But but method, it, you can do a right thing in a wrong way. Every one of you heard your mother or should have heard your mother say that to you, that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. How you do something the wrong way can invalidate completely what you do. So only a right thing done in a right way is right. So how something is done is also very important. So the first system is known as rationalism. Rationalism. And this was the view of, of uh, Plato in the ancient world and Descartes in the, in the um, in period of the Enlightenment. And the starting point for the rationalist is innate ideas. He starts with something that's already in his head. He's got certain innate ideas, and he has a, a faith, an unexpressed faith, in human ability to correctly interpret the ideas in his head and to correctly and logically uh, infer from those uh from those presuppositions, assumptions, or starting points. So he has certain innate ideas, and he starts from that. So this also leads into what's later called idealism. So the methodology, though, is an independent use of logic and reason. Man on his own, without any help from anyone else, any God or anything else, just starting on the basis of his uh, whatever whatever ideas are in his his logic machine of a brain, starting from that, working itself out on the principles of rigorous logic, can come to know uh, 
absolute universal truth. Now, the problem that you have with that, and the basic problem for Descartes, Descartes, remembers the one who said, I think, uh, therefore I am. And his methodology was to, to doubt everything. Well, what if, what if all y'all are just nothing more than a cosmic deception? That God used playing a big joke on me, and I don't, you, you don't even exist. So how do I prove that you exist? Well, how do I prove that I exist? Maybe I'm just a big cosmic deception. How do I know I exist? And Descartes scratched his head over that for a while. He was a Jesuit uh, uh, geometrician, and it wasn't long before he realized, if I'm thinking, I must exist. Ah, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. So that's his starting point. But he could never get outside of his head to the existence of other things. That's uh, in philosophy that's called solipsism. Well, the next view is empiricism. This, in the ancient world, this was Aristotle, and uh, coming out of the Enlightenment, this had men like Berkeley, uh, Hume, uh, John Locke were empiricists. They started with sense perception. They believed that instead of the brain having innate ideas, it was a a, a blank slate, an empty tablet or ta- tabula rasa. And so these sense perceptions uh, then gave us information. So you'd see, taste, touch, smell, feel certain things. And so you re- the, the mind received input through the senses uh, into the brain. Ex- and uh, on the basis of this external experience, then th- uh, the mind could come to truth. But ultimately, it's also faith in human ability. You, you believe the, the unstated assumption here is that man can properly interpret the evidence that he sees, his, his experience, without any input from outside revelation or authority and can come to universal truth. Now, again, the method's the same, an independent use of logic and reason. Now, the third way is really rationalism and empiricism gone to seed. Because historically what happens is both rationalism and empiricism fail. They, they, as systems of thought, they can't get to ultimate truth. This happened in the ancient, ancient uh, Greek world. It's happened in modern society. And so when, when rationalism and empiricism fail, skepticism comes in. But man can't live as if nothing is true. You may say that with your mind. You may think that. You may want to live that because for some reason you just don't want to believe uh, or you don't like where reason takes you or, or empiricism takes you. But you can't live as if there's no meaning in life. You can't act as if there, everything is meaningless. Uh, this is where you ended up with Nietzsche and the despair of uh, existentialism and Jean-Paul Sartre. You know, there's no meaning in life. There's no ultimate eternal values. So the only way you can uh, validate your existence is to do something. But because there's no eternal overarching value, it, it, there's nothing to inform good, what is good or what is bad. So you validate your experience or you ex- your existence, where you get the word existentialism, simply by doing some kind of action. That can be helping a little old lady across the street. Equally, it can be pushing the little old lady in front of a Mack truck. Either one validates your existence. You've given your life some kind of meaning. But there's no, there's no ethic or right or wrong to evaluate which you should or should not do. Because whenever you hear people talk about shoulds or oughts or 
then they're immediately bringing in some sort of universal value. Where do they get it? If you say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Well, on what basis shouldn't I do that? Where do you get this idea of a right and a wrong? Where does that come from? Is that just your opinion, or is that pragmatics, or is that have some kind of universal principle? So mysticism leaps to some sort of meaning apart from the rigorous use of logic. It's rejected logic and just bases uh, its, its, uh, its thoughts on inner private experience, sort of what I call an uh, intuitive hot flash, and you just, oh, this is right. So this is the right. This is what makes me feel good. And it, again, it's faith in human ability, but its methodology is that it's indep- again it's independent of any kind of divine revelation, and it's but it's non-logical, it rejects logic, rejects reason, and it's non-verifiable. When you're trying to communicate to somebody who's a pure mystic, and they just say, "Well, I believe it because I want to believe it," well, no matter how much reason or experiential data you, you bring to them, it doesn't matter because they're going to believe. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind's made up. That's the classic view of, of mysticism. Now, those are the three ways that the human race has come up with to try to come to truth apart from any kind of divine revelation. Now, as Bible believers, we believe that God has revealed himself to us. Now, you can come to truth with a lowercase t on the basis of reason, empiricism, or mysticism, perhaps. You can come to conclusions of uh, things like 1 plus 1 equals 2. You can demonstrate in the, uh, in the laboratory that uh, when you combine uh, two uh, hydrogen atoms with an oxygen atom, you have water. Uh, that, but that's a lower lowercase t for truth. But what gives that meaning? What? How do we interpret that? How do we really understand that? Uh, we can only do that ultimately if we have a broader grid, a broader framework that comes from divine revelation. So under divine revelation, we believe we have an objective revelation from God in the, in the Bible and that we use logic and reason to... Uh, to to understand what the Bible says. God has written it with words, vocabulary. He's used syntax, uh, grammatical structure, logic in order to uh, reveal things to us. But we use our logic and reason dependently. We let the Bible be uh, the, the source of information that front loads the logic machine. We don't front load the logic machine apart from Scripture and then try to reach conclusions independently of Scripture. Now, let me give you a really good practical biblical example of what I'm talking about. When God placed Adam in the garden, he said, here's all these plants, here's all these animals. I want you to go out there and I want you to start naming the animals. And I want you to start observing everything you can about creation, observing and categorizing, classifying things. So the animals start coming by, and he notices that that animal looks like that animal, so they ought to go together. And this other animal and that other animal uh, look pretty much the same, and they go together. And Adam, I believe, was extremely brilliant, and it didn't take him long before he realized there were some... these All these animals could pair off, but there were some differences and some of those differences played out in every single pair, and that there was a male and a female, and so there was a male and a female counterpart for every animal, but when it came to himself, there was no counterpart. He was alone. Now, he could come up with all kinds of information about the animals and studying them, height, weight, size, color, 
uh, all these different kinds of things. When he looked at the garden, God said, and I've given you this whole garden, and you can eat from any tree in it. And so he looks around, and he says, well, these trees have leaves that are uh, flat, and these have leaves that are, that are needle-shaped, and this has a rough bark, this has a smooth bark, this produces a fruit that is tart, this produces a fruit that is sweet. There's all kinds of information he could garner using observation, empiricism, and, um, and reason. But there's one thing he could not get any other way than revelation. And that was that if he ate from one particular tree, he would instantly die spiritually. In the day you eat of that fruit, you will certainly die, God said. Now, that piece of revelation gives him the framework for interpreting everything else. He understands all the other fruit trees and all the other food sources in light of that one overarching prohibition. So... When I talk about this, I'm not saying you can't come to certain kinds of truth through the independent use of reason, that you can't come to certain kinds of truth through the independent use of empiricism, and you may even come to some things through an intuitive hot flash, but, but if you operate at a macro level in terms of being totally independent from external revelation, then those systems will fail. They can't give us meaning and purpose in life, and they can't tell us about things that happened where there were no eyewitnesses. Okay? Now, how many people here like to watch CSI, CSI Miami, NCIS, any of those shows? Okay? Now, now that that is one kind of, the, of use of science. It's forensic science where you're starting off with a lot of data and you're trying to figure out who committed the murder or how the person died. And so that is a different kind of science than the kind of science that we're talking about in in the laboratory where you're trying to uh, demonstrate certain things, for example, laws like the laws of thermodynamics or the laws of gravity or various other things that are that are done in, in a laboratory. But what happens in a, in a sleight of hand is that when you're talking with evolutionists, they'll move from one to the other and you won't know it. But they're different kinds of science. See, when you get into a cer- certain circumstances where you have somebody who you think was a murderer and you have DNA and you have blood splatter and you have all this other data that looks like it's an iron shut case, but if the glove don't fit, then don't convict... And it doesn't matter how much DNA data you have, the person's found not guilty. Because basically in a forensic scientific approach, you you have all kinds of other factors. You don't have the same sort of rigor in your results that you need if you're formulating a scientific law or scientific principle, which is the area we're talking about in terms of origins. Okay, so... Now, we come to um, basic questions. Just that, that gets pretty abstract, so let me boil it down in, in a couple of different questions. Do we evaluate experience by the Bible, or do you evaluate the Bible by your experience? Now, 30 years ago, I thought that in, in addressing most congregations, that would be a pretty simple answer, that you evaluate your experience by the Bible. But that's not true anymore. I mean, most Christians have to really think about this. Well, wait a minute. Uh, 
So do you, and and, and by experience I mean if you're a scientist, you're going to go out and you're going to have some experiences with the fossils and the strata, the Grand Canyon. You're going to have various experiences with uh, uh, the animals out in the ocean, and you're going to have various experiences with uh, physical laws, things of that nature. Are you going to then come to conclusions independently of the Bible and then come back and, ch- and, and, and redefine how you understand the Bible? Are you going to start with the Bible and really make sure you understand the Bible clearly and then use that as the framework for interpreting your experience and interpreting the fossils, interpreting the, uh, the, the, the weather, interpreting the data? Which comes first? And as I said before, you have some basic problems and limitations when it comes to um, when it comes to to how you know know things. So one way is if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. Now that's the empiricist. I have to see it. I have to be able to somehow quantify it, measure it, something like that, or I, I won't believe it. But nobody can live uh, consistently on that basis. Everybody believes. Thousands of things that they've never seen. How many people here have ever seen electricity? How many people here have ever ever really uh, seen the wind? We haven't seen the wind. We've seen the effects of some of these things, but we haven't seen uh, these things. So um, that versus if I hadn't uh, believed it, there we go. Okay, if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. We all start with certain faith presuppositions, things that we believe, and that will in turn uh, actually shape uh, some of the things that that we see um, and how we under and how we understand those things. Um, Somehow I, got, I think I got this slide in here twice. Okay, let's go to this chart. Now this is a chart. This is why you can't sit on the back row. See, those of you on the back row, you, you, your 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 eyes were never good enough to see this chart. But this is really an important chart, and I don't. I'm not sure who developed this, but this is this is basically a, a typical a graph with your uh, uh, y-axis on the left and x-axis on the right, uh, going across horizontally. And on your y-axis going, uh, your vertical axis on the left, it's, it's describing space. And down at the bottom, it starts at the smallest possible uh, uh, dimension of space, down at the level of atoms or molecules, uh, sub- the subatomic. Then you go, excuse me, go up to the atom, uh, bacteria, then one centimeter, and then above that you have man, then you have something even larger, mountains, and then the sun, and then the solar system and the galaxies all the way out there. So you're moving from the microscopic up to the up to the uh, macro. Then going across, uh, we're dealing with time, and the shortest amount of time that we can uh, we can measure down to uh, an X-ray period, and then the next category is visible light period, and then a sound period, then a one second, one hour, one year historical period life beginning and then the age of the universe. So those are your parameters. 
on the on the vertical you go you're dealing with size and on the horizontal you're dealing with time now if you're going to uh, measure certain things or you're going to look at certain things uh, in terms of their size we can only get down below the level of uh, let's say into the bacterial or uh, atomic or subatomic by using instruments but but our instruments are only good to a certain point so anything beyond that becomes uh, conjecture now we can go up to a a large area but we can't really observe everything in the uh, in the in the universe so with the use of uh, uh, again with the use of telescopes and other instruments we can observe the sun we can observe the solar system and galaxies and, and the universe but we can't observe all of the universe now the same thing happens in terms of time through the use of um, high-speed film and then slowing it down we can uh, we can look at and measure certain uh, the, the speed of certain things it's so fast that we can't see it with our eyes and then there are some things that happen over a long period of time that we just can't see we, we can only measure certain things that we directly observe in terms of our own lifetime 70 80 90 100 years maybe if you get beyond that, you have to rely on somebody else's direct observation. And if you go beyond 5,000 years, then you have to, uh, you have to measure it. Uh, in, 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 there's no direct human writing or anything else. You just have to guess at what that is. And so in terms of direct observation, if you, you, you see in the middle of the chart, there's a square with, uh, with vertical lines. That's the only area where we have direct observation in terms of both time and space. The uh, grade area surrounding it is how we extend our direct observation in time and space through the use of technology or instruments. But beyond that, we're just in the realm of guesswork. We're in the realm of deductions and in the realm of conjecture, and we just can't say for sure about anything outside of that area of observation. So empiricism is good, but only to a particular point. Uh, reason also falls apart. All reason is, is a logic machine. That's all, all your reason is. It's a logic machine. You have, I have a calculator up there. But let's say the calculator didn't have any data in the program. Can it calculate? No. So in order, before logic can work, before reason can work, there has to be some data in the program. And those are the assumptions, biases, or presuppositions that, uh, that any, system, uh, any system begins with. And so both empiricism and uh, rationalism will fall apart ultimately because of the limitation of human ability. So you can't have ultimate faith in human ability to come up with the answers to universal questions on its own without input from the outside. Now that answers the first question that we had to deal in terms of foundational issues, which just has to do with who's the boss. And who's the boss has to be God. God speaks to us. He has described to us what he did and how he did it in a way that is understandable. But then we ask the question, well, what does it mean? Because, you know, you say one thing, somebody else says something else. There's a thousand different opinions out there, at least, as to what the Bible means. So how can you know for sure? Well, you can know for sure, and that has to do with using basic biblical study 
tools and approaches to scripture. And this brings up the whole issue of interpretation or hermeneutics, which is a uh, totally different uh, uh, subject that we could spend weeks on, but I don't have that kind of time. The golden rule of interpretation states, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context indicate clearly otherwise. Now, there are times when certain words have a range of meaning. For example, the word day in Scripture. God created in, in seven days. He rested on the seventh day, worked six days, rested on the seventh day. What does day mean? We'll get into this a little bit more uh, tomorrow. Uh, the Hebrew word day, just like the English word day, can, can have a broad sense in just uh, t- talking about a certain period of time. Like I could say, well, in my grandfather's day. That's talking about a broad time period. In, in my, if I were to say something like in my grandfather's day, uh, it would take 15 days to drive a car from Washington, D.C. to uh, Los Angeles. Now, how did I use day the second time? I, I used it in a, in a, little, in a 24-hour day. I mean, how did you know that? That's right, from the context. You know these things from the context and, and from the usage of the terms. So terms can have uh, a, a range of meanings, but context indicates uh, what the meaning is in any particular, any particular statement. Now, the contrast to this is usually some form of allegory, some form of spiritualizing the text. And Dwight Pentecost, in his book on uh, uh, hermen- hermeneutics, writes that the allegorical method was not born out of the study of scripture but rather out of a desire to unite Greek philosophy now notice it's taking something else that comes from empiricism or rationalism and then treats it as having the same level of authority as the Bible and merging it together and whenever you add something to the Bible as the same level of authority as the Bible you destroy the authority of the Bible so he's pointing out that allegory came into the church in the third century when they united Greek philosophy with the Word of God, it did not come out of a desire to present the truths of the Word, but to pervert them. It was not the child of orthodoxy, but of heterodoxy. All right, now Bernard Ram, and I'm going to quote Bernard Ram here, and I've got an, uh, another quote in this book here. Bernard Ram's important because he wrote a book called Protestant Biblical Interpretation, and uh, if you went to seminary or Bible college any time before the uh, 1980s, that was your textbook. But Bernard Ram has his Ph.D. in the philosophy of science, or the history of science, and he wrote a book called Science, Scripture, and Revelation back in the early, early uh, 50s, where he argued for basically a theistic day-age kind of view of, uh, of, uh, of evolution. And so he, he makes this statement um, in his book. He says, um, I'm not sure I have the right quote here. He, he writes, uh, No interpretation of Genesis 1 is more mature than the science that guides it. What did he just do? Is he, is he, control, is he interpreting experience by the Bible or the Bible by experience? He's interpreting the Bible by experience. That's, that's what he's doing. He's slipping away from strict biblical, um, biblical authority. 
And so, uh, according to him, he's basically saying that if scientific opinion contradicts a person's understanding of God's Word, then he must change his interpretation of Scripture because the conclusions of science might be right. But how many times has science changed its view on the age of the universe, age of the earth, uh, age of man, all this? How many times has that changed? And so every time it changes, we have to change our interpretation of the Bible. That's what makes it a lot of fun. Now, um, PPT Pun, who wrote an article in the Journal of... I always thought he had... That's an odd name. He ta- actually taught at Wheaton, but he's, he's not a creationist by any stretch of the imagination. Neither was Wheaton. Wheaton had... Many people say, oh, I'm going to send little Johnny off to a good liberal arts Bible college. I'm going to send him to Wheaton, and then his faith will be destroyed. Um, uh, PPT Pun wrote, It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of Genesis without regard to the hermeneutical consideration suggested by science. Notice that. Without regard to the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science. What has he just done? He's elevated science over revelation. He says, uh, a straightforward understanding of Genesis without regard to the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science is that God created the heavens and the earth in six solar days, that man was created on the sixth day, and that death and chaos entered the world after the fall of Adam and Eve, and that all fossils were the result of the catastrophic deluge that spared only Noah's family and the animals therewith. See, what's the issue? The issue is authority. Are you going to trust science, which changes all the time, or are you going to trust the Bible? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't refine our understanding of the biblical text, which is part of what we're talking about uh, during this week. Now, what happened historically, just to give you a little, a little background, is in the in the mid 17th century, early 17th century, in the study of geology, geologists began to question the the Noahic flood theory. Up until that point, pretty much uh, every every scientist in the Western world, including men like Newton, uh, Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. Of course, he didn't believe in the Trinity, but nevertheless, though he was a Trinitarian heretic, uh, Newton wrote more about the, the Bible and theology than he did about, about science. And yet we revere him because he discovered the law of gravity and various other things. And most of the scientists who laid the foundation for modern science and chemistry, biology, and other 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 sciences in the 16th and 17th century were Bible-believing Christians who believed in a literal Genesis, a, a literal creation, and a literal Noahic flood because that gave them a framework of absolute so they could be sure that if they performed an experiment a certain way today that those same uh, chemicals, those same elements would uh, perform the same way tomorrow because they're, they're ultimately governed and controlled by uh, an omnipotent God. So what happened is, in geology, long before Darwin, 100, 100 years plus before Darwin, you had geologists come along and begin to question that there was a worldwide flood that was this cause of fossils, the cause of stratification, all, uh, canyons, all these other things. And so they began to think that, well, the earth really isn't young. Up to that point, nearly or most people in the Western world believed the earth was five to 10,000 years old. And so they began to suggest that it was 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years old. 
Now remember, this is the Enlightenment where there is almost a glorification of human reason. And so in the Enlightenment, they, they believe that these scientists are coming up with truth. And, and in fact, a lot of the scientists that are, are, are what we would call today hobbyists. They were hobby scientists. They were, uh, they, they, many of them were clergy. That was their full-time job. And they would also, they're very interested in uh, biology or botany, classifications of the natural world, so they were studying God's creation. So they trusted those conclusions that they, they're, they're right. The earth really is 40,000 years old. Well, the Bible's right too, so how do we somehow find an extra 35,000 years in the Bible so that we can harmonize science our findings in science with the Bible. See, the problem was that that they didn't have set conclusions yet. They weren't right in those conclusions. They were saying that the Earth was forty thousand years old. Nobody, no evolutionist believes that today. No uh, evolutionary geologist, historic uh, uniformitarian geologist, believes that today. They would put the Earth at at two or three million years old. So, the, one of the first things that they came up with, a man who became a very well-known leading, one of the leading Scottish theologians by the name of Thomas Chalmers, beginning in the, uh, 18, around 1813, 1814, began to preach that you could, you, that there was a gap, and there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that Genesis 1-1 would be understood as the original creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then when you get to verse 2, when it says, and the earth was without form and void, that that should be understood as, but the earth became uh, without form and void, or became chaotic, or became an empty wasteland. So something caused the original perfect creation of Genesis 1-1 to be destroyed or marred or chaotic by Genesis 1-2. And, and for uh, uh, 2,000 years almost, 1,800 years, that's where... Uh, many people had put the fall of Satan. You can trace that view back to the early second century, at least in the Targum of Onkelos. And so there was a there's a tradition of that view. But they're not putting thousands or millions of years between Genesis one one and one two. They're just putting enough time in there for Satan to fall. Could be days, could be weeks, could be a few years. But it wasn't thousands and thousands or millions or billions of years. But when Chalmers came along, he said, oh, I've got the perfect solution. We'll just take all these historical ages and all the fossils and all the dinosaurs and all the uh, various uh, Stone Age uh, men that we find, we'll just cram them into that period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That way we can accept the conclusions of modern science that the Earth is, is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years old, but we can believe that man, at least from Adam to the present, is what the Bible says, only five or 6,000 years, uh, years old. A second approach was the day-age view. In the day-age view, they understood that each of the days to really represent long periods of time, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I've given you a handout on this so that you can look at these various definitions. I've given you a little more information there. And usually, folks who hold the day-age view will go to uh, a passage in uh, Peter, a day for with the Lord, a uh, uh, day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. But that's not a definition of a day. You can't come along and say, well, those days in Genesis 1 are a thousand years each. 6,000 years, 6,000 more years doesn't get you anywhere in this debate. That only moves the debate from the earth being six or seven or 8,000 years to 
you know, 14, 15, 16,000 years. That doesn't get you millions or billions of years. So that's not a definition. That is really a, a, uh, a figurative way of speaking about the fact that, 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 that earthly time is not a factor in heaven. God does not operate, God doesn't live in a dimension that is governed by a 24 hour day cycle like the rest of the, uh, like the created universe. Then we have a view called progressive creationism, which sees those days as being um, the, the uh, days of, of uh, revelation. Um, then we have a framework hypothesis where this is just a... Uh, in the framework hypothesis, this is a literary framework. This is getting to be very, very popular today. And, uh, in fact... There's only one man I know left in the uh, Old Testament Department at Dallas Seminary who still believes in a literal, no matter what you do with the gap, a literal six 24-hour consecutive day creation week. Only one guy left at Dallas. Uh, All the other schools are gone. Trust me, if you think any of the schools that were good, solid schools uh, 40 years ago, forget it. They're gone. They're gone. They have compromised scripture, uh, Scripture completely. Uh, so we just can't trust that. Okay, now basically let's define some terms on evolution. I've got three more hours to go. I hope you all are comfortable. I'm at the bottom of page two. I have, what, 27 pages printed for tonight. So, Okay, just some basic definitions. Now, in evolution, suffering, death, and pain are normal. Do you ever think about that? In the evolutionary theory, in Darwinism, what's the big phrase you hear in Darwinism? The survival of the fittest. That's nice and positive, isn't it? What about those that didn't survive? What happened to them? They're dead. They died. They suffered and died. They couldn't make it. They, 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 They weren't strong enough. They were born with three legs instead of four. And, and they suffered immensely before they died. So suffering is not only normal... It's good. Because if you don't have 10 billion bad um, uh, mutations and all the pain that that would bring into those various species to produce one good mutation, then you can't go forward. So we need to be real happy when something has a birth defect or there's some kind of mutation or something is, is, uh, is suffering because that suffering and that death is the key to progress. If you people, if, if things didn't die, if if species weren't going extinct, then then we couldn't go forward. So we just need to be happy about that. Suffering, death, and pain are normal. But see, in the Bible, suffering, death, and pain are not normal. They're abnormal. God didn't create a universe where suffering, death, and pain were normal. That comes in as a result of Adam's sin. That's why God has to redeem the creation in Genesis in Romans eight and bring in a perfect new heaven and new earth and do away with the curse. That's Isaiah chapter 65 in the Old Testament. And do away with the curse because uh, what we have today is abnormal. It's not what God intended. That's why Jesus wept, not because Lazarus was in the grave, but because he saw the pain and the suffering of the mourners because God never intended man to go through that initially. All that pain and suffering that comes from death is a is a result of sin. It's abnormal, uh, but in evolution, it's normal. So we should rejoice every time uh, there's pain and suffering. 
An evolution basic definition is that everything in the universe developed from nothing by pure chance. That means you're a cosmic accident. We're just, a, you know, some little piece of protoplasm got an electric charge and eventually turned into you. But you're not any, that means that there's no hard and fast lines between you and a blob of protoplasm. So if I can wipe out, uh, kill a blob of protoplasm, then I can kill you and it doesn't make any difference. But let's reverse that. If there's no lines of demarcation between the blob of protoplasm, the amoebas, the fish, and you, then you're going to be an environmentalist. That's why you have to protect the fish and the amoebas, because they're really not any different from you. That's how. That's one way in which Christianity and creationism makes a difference in environmentalism. Now, what will often happen is that evolutionists will say that uh, evolution simply means change. You believe in change, don't you? Look at look at what happens with um, with with dogs. You can breed dogs. You can develop new breeds of dogs, and and you can um, you have all kinds of different uh, different breeds of dogs. You have collies, and you have uh, Yorkies, and you have Golden Retrievers, and you have all kinds of things. But you know, it's still a dog. At the end of the day, it's still a dog. Uh, so the question in evolution is what kind of change? Uh, microevolution is the change that um, that we believe in, change and development within a species or a kind, uh, which is what the, Bi- the term the Bible used, which I think is much broader than a species. Uh, so it's a change of, of uh, within species so that you can, you, you know, I think biblically the kind would include coyotes and wolves, and it was just basically a dog or canine kind of foxes, um, Dogs, dogs, all that developed from one initial pair, and that's that's all microevolution. It's still the same kind. Then we have macroevolution, which is what they're really talking about. That's a change in development of species across boundaries, where fish eventually crawl out of the water, develop lungs instead of gills, and become reptiles, and reptiles eventually become mammals, which eventually develop into birds and land animals, and eventually into the human race. But without any external guidance, it just all happens by chance. So the result of that is evolution logically necessitates polygenesis. Now, what does polygenesis mean? Poly means many. It would mean that, that the human race popped up in many different places, Africa, Asia, uh, Australia. And this was the common teaching of Darwinian evolution until when? Anybody know? No? No, this was the common teaching until World War II. What stopped the teaching of polygenesis? The Holocaust. Because the Jews were viewed within the social Darwinistic theory as a subhuman species. And if you go to any Holocaust museum, there'll be a sign that says, Jews are not a separate race. Because that's what was being said, is they were a separate race. They weren't human. That's polygenesis. So you have, you know, blacks developed, uh, you know, out of Africa, Asians developed over here, Caucasians uh, over there, and they don't have the same, they don't come from the same individual source. But they had to reject that because eventually uh, that became a problem. See, Darwin's Origin of the Species was originally subtitled uh, Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Now, favored is a value term. 
Who's favored and who's not? Who decides who's favored and who's not? Well, Hitler was deciding who was favored and who's not. Stalin was deciding because they were applying the merger of of Darwinism with with uh, Marxism and fascism and other ideas in uh, in their in their view. So, basically, what evolution says is if anything is given enough time plus chance, then it will result in order, intelligence, and complexity. Okay, that means that you can uh, you can take your computer apart down to the smallest components. And you can put it in a big uh, tumbler, and given enough time, it'll eventually all go back together again and work. Anybody believe that? No, but see, to believe evolution, you, you would have to believe that, because they're, they're the same thing. So, another way of putting it is, nothing plus no one equals everything. Nothing plus no one is everything. Now, this is a quote from Dr. Harrison Matthews. He's an evolutionist, and I mean, he's not just some some uh, you know high school biology teacher somewhere who's got a degree from the local junior college. This is a guy who's chosen to write the introduction to Darwin's Origin of Species, and this is what he said: "The fact of evolution is the backbone of biology. Notice it's a fact." And biology is thus in the peculiar position of being a science founded on an unproved theory. Isn't that great? I just love it when they're honest. When they're talking to, you know, inside the camp, they'll be honest. Uh, the fact of evolution is an unproved theory. Is it then science or is it a faith? B- belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither up to the present has been capable of proof. That's the point. Darwinism, evolution, is, is just as much a faith, just as much a religion as, as belief in, in creation. And I think it takes more faith. Dr. T.N. Tamizian, who served on the Atomic Energy Commission, stated in an interview in 1959, that scientists who go about teaching that evolution is a fact of life are great con men. And the story they're telling may be the greatest hoax ever. In, in, in explaining evolution, we do not have one iota of fact. Now, this is an, an evolutionist. He is not a creationist. Uh, I just, like I said, I love it when they're honest. Okay, now, I, what time is it? Anybody have any questions? It's about... 8.15, so I think we ought to... It's a good stopping point. Anybody have any questions? Nobody has any questions? Where's the nearest ice cream store? I've always got questions. Yes? Oh, he believes it. But he... he That's where his faith is. He's recognizing that ultimately, it's just like when you go back to that chart that I used on how do we know, come to the knowledge of truth, what's the traffic cop? Every system, whether we're whether it's faith in the Bible, faith in human reason, faith in our ability to interpret experience, everything we know ultimately is based on faith. Every and the, and they're honest enough to realize that. 
that everything ultimately you, you may start with a calculator that's the logic machine but something's got to preload it with some data that's that's faith and what we have to do sometimes is take out that preloaded data and l- take a look at it and see if there's any any reason to, to substantiate it now the question that I'm really going to in this is that is there data that that demonstrates an old earth or have they preloaded their thought machine with old earth biases so that when they start looking at fossils and they start looking at the rocks and they start looking at the sediment that because they're they're preloaded to an old earth view that's what they're going to find and I've got a quote to that effect that what happens is that in a theory the theory it decides what you look at and what you don't look at. Okay? No, no, but, or, or what they came to believe along, along the way. Yeah, they, they rejected, for whatever reason, they reject the view that the earth is young. They look out there at these mountains out here and they go, it just looks old can't be young. It's got to be old. got to be hundreds of thousands of years old. Okay, now let's go prove it. Well, we're not any different. I'm just saying everybody is that way. But you have to be able... There are ways in which you can validate your and, and, uh, uh, and test your presuppositions. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, I don't think I don't think that they're they've actually interpreted the data. I mean, I'm not a geologist; that's not my specialty. But I would say, from what I have read, what I have looked at, uh, what they they've seen something, and they've interpreted a certain way based on the presuppositions of their theory. And so, because I am a, I believe in the legitimacy of flood geology and that all the strata I mean what, what what's in the strata what makes up all the strata above and below that line it's sedimentary rock what's in what is what lays how, where does sedimentary rock come from it's laid down by water and, and what do you find in the sediment both above and below that line you find dead dead sea creatures everywhere all over the earth well the Bible says that there was a worldwide flood that occurred at the time of Noah and so what do you expect to find? You expect to find, as a result of a worldwide flood, sedimentary rock covering the entire earth and embedded within that sedimentary rock uh, the remains of all the creatures that, that got trapped in that rock when it was laid down during the flood. So that, that's what you do is you set up certain models and then you predict on the basis of those models what kinds of things you should find. Now, that doesn't mean the creationists have all the answers. And neither does it mean that, that evolutionists have, have all the answers. Because we're both dealing with uh, consequences of actions that took place where we don't have eyewitness accounts that specifically tell us what happened. But, but what we're dealing with here at a broader level is the framework of the interpretation. 
and their framework is natural processes. I'll get into this tomorrow night. Natural processes over a long period of time uh, that don't that don't change. But that's ch- even but that's changing. I mean, uniformitarianism is is really on its last leg in geology. When we were at the Chafer uh, 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 Pastors Conference, we had Dr. Steve Austin from uh, ICR. There's got his PhD in geology from uh, University of uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he he has he has several. Uh, peer-reviewed articles that have uh, truly ha- impacted understanding of ge- geology so that when most of us in this room were young, we were taught that that the Grand Canyon was the result of erosion over a period of hundreds of thousands of years. No self-respecting, up-to-date geologist today believes that. They would believe that it, it was probably laid down some sort of catastrophe. No, no, they're not going to pin that on the on the on the Noahic flood, but see, they're still changing because what they've discovered as a result of a, a number of different things is that it, it, the idea that something like the Grand Canyon would take take millions of years to develop through erosion just does not stand up to the to the evidence that's been developed from the rocks. But that's not. But it takes years for that kind of stuff to filter down to the classroom. Yes, sir. Oh, and, and, and I think it does in extremely negative ways. Uh, for example, uh, uh, as I stated, when I went to Dallas Seminary in the 70s, there wasn't anybody in the theology department or the Old Testament faculty that didn't believe in a, in a basically a young earth creationist view. And now, um, I don't know about the theology department because I don't know everybody there, but I would say at least probably two-thirds of them don't believe that anymore. Uh, mo- the popular view today is a view that's put out by Hugh Ross and others. It's uh, the framework hypothesis or mo- uh, modification of the day-age view. And, um, and that, that dominates uh, the Old Testament department as well. And so th- this, this has a lot of consequence. It starts breaking down theology. This is the same thing that happened 150 years ago. In the mid-19th century, with the introduction of, of, quote, modern science and, quote, modern scientific methods on uh, applied historically to the Bible, you develop what was called historical criticism, which began to really tear down the Bible. It denied the supernatural, denied miracles, denied that there was an objective God that could reveal himself to man, and it produced what was what's called 19th century liberalism that, that uh, at that time was called modernism, that rejected miracles, rejected the deity of Christ, rejected the virgin birth. These things could just couldn't happen presuppositionally because they couldn't be explained according to, to reason. And that created a, a pushback from uh, Bible-believing Christians that were called fundamentalists because they believed in the fundamentals of the faith, which was a series of books uh, published in the uh, 19-teens. Uh, identifying the fundamentals as a belief in the infallibility of the Bible, uh, the legitimacy of, of miracles, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the future second coming of Christ. These were all part. These were the fundamentals of the faith, and so that's what happened. There's your major denominations, uh, all were taken over by 
uh, modern modern uh, modern thought. Uh, Northern Baptists, that's what led to the split in the 30s, and you had your conservative Baptist split off, and your regular Baptist split off, and two or three other smaller Baptist groups split off of the Northern Baptist denomination. Southern Baptists have still, they had a huge battle over inerrancy back in the 70s, and some men out of Houston, uh, Judge uh, Paul Pressler was one, came out of, he had attended the church where John and I grew up for a while. He was a judge there, went back to the Southern Baptist Convention, and he and Paige Patterson, who's now the uh, uh, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, led a bloody fight for 20, 30 years for the soul of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and won. And that's the first time that kind of reversal has ever taken place. And they got key pe- they worked the politics. They got key people in the key committees who appointed uh, presidents of different uh, seminaries and different uh, mission organizations. And all these these people had to believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, and they reversed the slide into liberalism among Southern Baptists. But the, you know the Lutherans lost, the uh, Missouri Synod lost, the, all those battles got lost, and so you, that's where the Bible Church movement came from. It came out of that, but Bible Church movement is now sliding down the same way. We're we're seeing the second stage of the fundamentalist modernist controversy today. Is what I'm what I'm saying, and that's why we have to have new seminaries. And it's time for a commercial for Chafer Seminary. If, if Chafer Seminary doesn't make it, if Chafer Seminary doesn't get established, there isn't another school, to my knowledge, that upholds the historic values of the faith that Princeton did in the 19th century, that Dallas did in the early part of the 20th century, and that uh, a couple of other schools like uh, uh, Talbot and uh, Western Conservative Baptist did then. The others have all uh, slid away. And this is one area. Once you start sliding in, in your area of origins, then everything else tends to domino. Any other questions? Yes, sir. No, that's, that, that, that's sort of... An urban myth, yeah. yeah. And he was never, uh, and there's no documentation that he was ever became a Christian. I mean, Christians are really gullible. They just want every, they they, they just want everybody to get saved. And, and anybody comes along and say, well, you know, so and so got saved. Now, I did find out recently that that Karl Marx is probably saved. He he was he was raised Jewish, and his father converted to Christianity, and he went. He was a really he was an on fire. Uh, Christian teenager for two or three years before he he uh, got tired of that. But so you'll probably be living next door to Carl sometime. So just get, just get ready. <laughs> that's right. That, that that's right. Didn't take much more grace to save him than you and me. But okay. Anything else? All right. Well, we'll come back tomorrow night and try to get a little further down the line. I only got halfway through tonight, so. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to uh, reflect upon your word, to think it through so that we can come to a better understanding of of, uh, your word and how to understand it and how it impacts other areas of thought, especially as we come to understand your creation and that we come to an even better understanding, as we'll see in the next couple of nights, of how this does truly impact other areas of doctrine, other areas of theology. And we just pray that uh, we would be encouraged by what we study, that we can truly believe your word, and that there is evidence that supports it, that substantiates it, and that despite the fact that it's attacked on many quarters, 
uh, we can be confident that it's true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.